This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Now and Not Yet. Pressing in when you're waiting, wanting, and restless for more. Written and narrated by best-selling author Ruth Cho Simons and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Taylor Schumann, welcome to Viral Jesus. You're in pain all the time and you're doing your best to recover, but you're afraid and you're having nightmares and you can't sleep and you've made progress, but then you have to have another surgery and the people around you don't really understand what it was like because they didn't get shot. They weren't in the shooting. From Christianity Today, this is Viral Jesus, a show about communication and the power of social connections, where we talk to some of the most influential Christian content creators to find out how they've made their faith go viral. I'm your host, Heather Thompson Day. As a professor of communication at Andrews University, I have been studying and teaching communication theories for over a decade, and nothing allows me to nerd out more than talking about stories as a communication tool. I did my entire dissertation on storytelling and how stories connect us in incredibly unique ways. Stories change us. So here's the thing. We experience stories as if they were happening to us. On fMRI scans, many different areas of the brain light up when someone listens to a story. Not only the networks involved in language processing, but other neural circuits too. One study of listeners found that the brain networks that process emotions arising from sounds, along with areas involved in movement, were activated, especially during the emotional parts of the story. As you hear a story unfold, your brain waves actually start to synchronize with those of the storyteller. A neuroscience study at Princeton recorded the brain activity in two people as one person told a story and the other listened. They found that the more the listener listened, the more closely the brain wave patterns mirrored those of the storyteller. Today, we are going to hear from shooting survivor Taylor Schumann, and I hope you'll listen to her story. Our guest today is Taylor Schumann, shooting survivor, activist, and author Taylor S. Schumann recently wrote the book, When Thoughts and Prayers Aren't Enough, a shooting survivor's journey into the realities of gun violence. It is her hope to ignite passion and action around such an important issue for current and future generations. All right. Well, we have Taylor Schumann here, which I'm super excited about. Taylor, do you mind if I read to you one of your tweets? And then I'll explain to you why I'm sharing this. But here's one of Taylor's recent tweets. She said, got stung by a wasp because I set my hand down on top of a wasp. So here's what I love about you, Taylor. You are, you are totally yourself. You are totally yourself online. You have almost 10,000 followers, people who are following your content to hear what you have to say, of course, about gun advocacy and of course about your faith. But they're also going to hear about you putting your hand on top of a wasp. And (laughs) I just want you to take a second and just tell us, what is your social strategy? What does it look like for you? Oh my goodness. This is so funny. I, you know, I've read a lot of things or like gotten a lot of advice about like how to grow your social media and like what people respond to and, you know, content creation. 
But for me, it's always started as a relationship with the people who follow me online. Um, So I want them to know me as a person before they feel they need to listen to what I'm saying about maybe serious issues or before I'm asking them to maybe reconsider an opinion they have or a long-held belief that they have. I want them to get to know me as a person so that we can remember, like even in heated conversations or debates or when we have conflicting Mm. opinions, that we're both just people and that they've seen a picture of my son and that um, they know what dessert I like or what wine I like to drink or, you know, those kinds of details that we kind of forget when we – but heads with someone, especially online, it's easy to kind of forget about the humanity of others. So if I can make people laugh, if they can get to know me, remember that I'm like a goofy person, you know, be funny and make people laugh, then I think that can go a long way in impacting those maybe harder conversations that we have too. So I just invite people into my life, um, tell them what's going on with me, um, whether it's funny or sad or hard. Um, you know, it's it's a community, and I, I consider it a community. I love that. So for those of you who may not be familiar with Taylor, you are a school shooting survivor, and you explain that many shooting survivors expect that the day of the event would be the worst day of their lives, but really it's the beginning of many worst days. Can you tell us a bit about your story and then what you mean by that statement? Yeah, um, so... In 2013, in April, about eight years ago, um, I was working at a community college in Southwest Virginia um, when a student came in with a shotgun and um, he Mm. tried, I was sitting at my desk, he tried to shoot me from behind and thankfully wasn't able to get the safety off the gun, which gave me some time to get up and run and hide in a supply closet behind my desk. Um, He shot through the door and the bullet went through my hand. I was trapped in there for about five minutes, though it felt much longer than that. Um, And an Mm off-duty security guard heard about it on the police scanner, and he came in and got the shooter to drop his gun. One other student was shot, and she survived as well. Um, I spent a few days in the hospital. I had four surgeries over the course of a year, Um, a lot of occupational therapy, um, a lot of counseling, those kind of things. Um, I'm probably looking at a couple more surgeries in my lifetime, depending on what happens with my hand. Um, And so it's interesting when I say, you know, I expected that day to be the worst day of my life. You know, that's kind of what you have to believe on a very difficult day of your life, that this was the worst day. This is the hardest thing I could possibly ever face. I made it through. I survived. Um, But then really hard days keep coming and you're in pain all the time and you're doing your best to recover, but you're afraid and you're having nightmares and you can't sleep and you've made progress, but then you have to have another surgery and the people around you don't really understand what it was like because they didn't get shot. Mm -hmm. They weren't in the shooting. So you feel alone and um you maybe feel left behind because your friends aren't shooting survivors and they are able to move on with their life and you feel stuck. Um, You know, I had to go to court proceedings for a year, deal with workers' comp and, you know, medical bills and all these kind of things that I never saw for myself. I had to 
um, kind of reevaluate where I felt my life was going, what I could accomplish with my new physical disabilities, um, with my um, PTSD and anxiety. And as time goes by, people start to forget and you start to feel like you have to return to normal, but you can't return to normal because nothing is normal anymore. And it's just these little things that start to compound themselves in your life and make you realize this is going to be hard for a long time. It wasn't just one day. I'm going to have to keep figuring out how to live this new reality. And that can be really difficult because you realize, yeah, that one day is behind me, but there's a lot of really hard days coming up. And what does that look like for me? And how can I, how can I get through that? Was this a student that you knew that you had a relationship with or was this just random? Just random. I just happened to be wow the person at the front desk um, working. Wow. There were a few of us, you know, that kind of switched in and out. Um, after the shooting, during one of the court proceedings, he we got to see videos that he had made of himself, um, kind of outla- outlining his plans. And one of the things he said was that he would walk in and kill the person at the front desk. And it just happened to be me that day that he came. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I can't even, as somebody who works in education, that is, you know, for a long time, it's been the big education conversation point. Typically they send out a text message saying, I've I've been on a campus actually where they send out the text message, active shooter on campus, but Mm -hmm. you then didn't even have that because you were sitting at the front desk. Wow. Yeah. There was nothing. He just walked right in and there it was. Thankfully, um, my coworker had decided to take her break um, before I took mine. So she was outside eating her lunch in her car and she saw him walk into the school with the <gasps> gun. So did a lot of other people. So a lot of people okay. were already calling 911 before he got inside because he just walked through a crowded parking lot, um, you know, in the middle of the day with a, a big gun. So thankfully people saw him and, and called the police. So they were able to get there pretty quickly. So let me ask you. In your book, When Thoughts and Prayers Aren't Enough, and I think everybody should purchase this book as you listen to this conversation, pause, pull it up. It's right there for you on Amazon. It's from IVP University Press, When Thoughts and Prayers Aren't Enough by Taylor Schumann. How was, what was that like, the writing process? Because it's like, I've always wanted to be a writer, right? Was that a, a dream for you too or no? Yes, it always was a dream for me. I didn't know what I would Exactly. What kind of writer I would be, but I knew I wanted to write books. So that's what my question was. So, so you you know you want to be a writer. I'm sure you never fathom it that this is going to be your story. Can you talk to me about the process of you even deciding I'm going to write? I'm going to tell this story and I'm going to write about this. Was that a hard decision to make? You know, it wasn't. Okay. Um, it was maybe a little scary because I knew it would be difficult in many ways, but. I knew I wanted to. And, you know, soon after the shooting, I started writing on a blog, you know, just sharing with people what was hard and what I was going through. And so I began to find healing through writing pretty soon after, whether that was in my journals sometimes or, you know, publicly online. Um, So I, I was finding healing and solace through writing. And then I think it was a little over a year after um, it was the middle of the night and I couldn't sleep and I kind of pulled out a you know notepad that I had on my nightstand and I just I wrote I still have it today because it helps remind me 
um, what I was feeling at the time. And I just wrote, I want to write a book and I want to write the book that I need right now that I can't find. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of the, my driving force in wanting to write this book and share my story was that I was looking all over the place for a book about um, trauma and grief and healing and all these things. And I was buying books left and right, and I would start them and never finish them. Um, and it's not that they weren't good books. I just was having trouble finding um, my story or a place to connect my story with one of those books. And I just said, mm-hmm. I I want to write this book. And I, and I felt God calling me to do that. And he is consistently, you know, open the doors and helps me get there and, you know, sustained me to do it. Um, so I'm very thankful for that. Talk to me about the writing process of this book. Was it like this really deep healing experience or was it painful? I don't know. Um, I think it was a little of both. You know, I was used to writing, you know, shorter blog post, uh, type writing or articles, you know, for different publications. So it was strange to sit down and think, oh, I need to write 60,000 words about this, you know, kind of transition Mm -hmm. that into a long form process. And then, you know, I think IVP probably wanted to like cancel the contract when I turned in 92,000 words. So apparently I did have (laughs) uh, enough words to meet that goal. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but you know, there were so many things once I started kind of piecing together the different stories I wanted to tell and where those would fit best, you know, what, what chapters and, you know, what themes emerged. There were so many little things that I was able to process and see in a new way or find healing in a new way. Um, now Mm. that, you know, it's been eight years, um, I'm, I can process things in a different way now and, and see them together. And, and um, so it was healing. Some days were hard. Some days I could only write 500 words and then, you know, I couldn't handle any more than that. Um, but it definitely was a healing experience. I'm very thankful that I got to do it. What are you still surprised by? You just said it's been eight years. So at, at looking back now, what still surprises you about this journey eight years later? I think I'm surprised by all the pressure I put on myself back then. I just put so much pressure on myself to heal on a certain timeline or um, with a certain attitude, you know. Mm. Um, yeah, I just felt a lot of pressure to, and I write a little bit about this in the book, to be the right kind of survivor, you know, to always make sure everyone knew I was very thankful that I'd survived. Um, and you know, that I was being positive and I had a good outlook because so many other people don't survive. And I felt a lot of pressure to make sure people knew that I understood what it meant to survive this. And I, you know, I didn't know back then that that was a form of survivor's guilt, this feeling that I had to justify my survival because so many other people don't survive. And I felt all this pressure to, you know, share my story and have it be this big impressive testimony because that's kind of what I grew up around hearing, you know, hearing people's miraculous stories. And I just felt all this pressure to like do certain things and be certain things for other people and make other people feel comfortable. Even when, you know, I was having a really hard day and I was in a lot of pain, you know, making other people feel comfortable. It's all these things I couldn't see at the time. 
um, because I was in so much pain and I was hurting and I was traumatized. And so now looking back, I can just see all these ways that um, I was just being way too hard on myself. And I wish I could go back and, you know, tell Taylor of eight years ago, like, no, this is okay. You're not on a timeline. You heal at your own pace. And like God's healing for you is right on time. You, you know, you don't need to make everyone else feel better. Like this is about you and um, you don't have to do anything to earn your survival. Like you survived and that's amazing. And um, yeah, I just, yeah, I was really hard on myself and I, I didn't realize that at the time. That is, I'm still like, I got tears in my eyes actually when you said that, that you felt pressure to prove that you were grateful for having survived. That is really, I'm sure like we can insert whoever's listening, we can insert whatever trauma Mm -hmm. that you go through. And then uh, that's something that me having not gone through that, I didn't even think about. So you saying that is just so perfectly putting it into words what I think probably millions of people feel. Yeah, and I think we we can make it worse for other people, even in things we say, you know, because people would say to me, like, I would say, oh, yeah, I was shot through my hand. And people would say things like, well, thank goodness it was only your hand. Or, you know, thank goodness it wasn't your head or your heart. Um, and so to me, that was, oh, wow, like being shot through the hand apparently isn't bad enough. I guess I just have to be grateful it wasn't these other things, you know? So I think just like being careful with the things we say to other people, not minimizing what it is that they're going through. Cause those types of comments, you know, we interpret those as, well, I guess they don't think this is that bad. This isn't like a safe place to be open about how bad this is for Mm. me. Um, and so I learned a lot about being a good friend to someone in a, going through a really hard time. You know, I learned about, what things aren't helpful, what things are helpful. Um, And I'm really thankful for that too, because since this happened, you know, the people in my life have been through some really hard things. And I feel now that I have a better grasp on, you know, how to sit with people in suffering and their hard moments and how to let them, you know, live those out and support them in those ways. This episode is brought to you in part by World Relief an organization that partners with the local church to serve the most vulnerable. Around the world, increased conflict, the lingering effects of COVID-19, and disasters caused by our changing climate have left millions of people in desperate situations. Many are fleeing their homes and are facing starvation, persecution, and more. These overwhelming challenges cause many of us to wonder, can I make a difference? The answer is simple. Yes, you can. When you join The Path, World Relief's monthly giving community. You partner with World Relief in bringing hope and transformation to the millions experiencing vulnerability around the world. And when you partner with your monthly gift by September 30th, your first year of monthly gifts will be matched dollar for dollar up to $25,000. Double the impact of your giving and visit worldrelief.org slash viral Jesus today. What happened to you, I would assume, was public where mm-hmm. – so what happens? You get out of the hospital. Are there TV crews or are people calling you for interviews, wanting you to talk to them about this? How does that affect 
the pro- the trauma that you're already in. What what is that like? Oh yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I the day it happened, um, you know, I knew it had been all over the news because when I finally got my phone back a couple days later um, from the police, you know, I had tons of text messages and calls and. Um, and then the next day that I woke up in the hospital, you know, they had brought in a paper with my breakfast and my picture was on the front page of the newspaper. Um, they had just taken it like from my Facebook page (laughs) and, um, you know, we turn on the TV and it's across the news ticker on the bottom of the screen, you know, on national news and it happened in a small town. So it was big news in a small town. And every time there was a court hearing, Mm -hmm. you know, it would come back on the news and there would be another article in the paper and I would hear about it, you know, from, from people I knew in the community. And so that was hard because I knew people were watching me. I knew people were listening to what I was saying. Um, and I felt like I had to be really, uh, careful about what I said and about how I acted because even in a, something like a shooting, people still can be pretty judgmental about how you live that out. And, um, I was very aware of that, especially when it comes to an Mm -hmm. issue like guns. Um, you know, cause there's always conversations right. being thrown at you and there's a lot of pressure to just like know what you're going to say. And so with interview requests, I would get them and I would say, I'll do an interview with you, but I'm not going to talk about, I don't want to talk about guns. Like this needs to just be about me and what I went through. And more often than not, that was kind of a deal breaker. So I didn't do a lot of that in the early days. So what do you think the conversation should look like right now? Yeah, no. Um, you know, I think for me. Often what I'm trying to do is share my story, give people an access point to gun violence. Because while we see gun violence on the news all the time and we know it's happening in our community, I think if you talk to most people, they probably don't know anyone that has been involved in a shooting. Um, So what I'm trying to do is say, hey, you might not know about gun violence and how it's affecting people and how it affects someone's life. Let me tell you about that. Let me tell you about how it affected my life. and. I hope that by doing that, I'm able to then open the door a bit wider and say, this is what we know about gun Mm -hmm. violence. This is what we think would be beneficial to help reduce the suffering, to reduce the amount of people dying or being injured. What do you think about that? And kind of use my story as a way to invite people in Mm -hmm. to talk about that with me. Um, and I just happen to be in a good position to do that because I'm I'm someone that experienced that. And I'm also someone who, you know, up until the shooting and a couple years after was still pretty pro-gun and still pretty pro-Second Amendment and didn't really know a lot about gun violence. So mm. I have a lot of perspectives I'm able to bring to this conversation. So now I'm happy to talk about uh, gun safety and gun reform, but I wasn't then because I wow. didn't know what I was talking about, and I needed time uh, to process everything that had happened to me and grow and learn and right, right. study and become familiar. Um, so yeah, now I'm I'm happy to lead in those conversations and do what I can to to get people familiar with this conversation about gun violence. And I can tell you, as somebody who has been following you, I can't even remember when I started following you, but I will say exactly what you said you hope your story does, I think is how it's impacted my life. I will seek out articles now that I probably wouldn't have sought out Mm -hmm. because of you. So I just want you to know it's hitting over here. Thank you. So, so thank you. Can you tell us a story 
about how maybe you maybe somebody has reached out to you on social media and and like me like what i just said somebody has reached out to you and said because of your story i now see x y and z differently has that happened to you at all yes it has and i am so thankful for every person that does that because when you're in a space like this and if it can often just feel like constant arguing or like talking to a wall um so to know that you've helped someone in that way is really, really special to me. It keeps me going. Um, but yeah, it's definitely happened. It's even happened with people like I know personally in my own life. You know, I have a friend who mm. is like super pro gun, grew up with guns, you know, owned guns when I was shot. And we would like really get into it about gun reform. And then over the years, um, he's just totally changed his his opinions about that and has reached out to thank me for sharing my story and, um, you know, being willing to have those conversations and to fight a little bit. Cause sometimes we fight and, you know, we just both care about things. So that's okay. Um, but yeah, it's always really impactful, (laughs) um, to me to know that like what I'm doing matters and it's important and, um, and it does have the power to change lives, even if it's, you know, quote, just on social media. Let me ask you this, because there's a post that you put on your Instagram and you said this, but this idea that it's not real life, it's untrue. Who you are online and in your own personal life cannot be separated. You are as responsible for your actions online as you are in person. My online friends have become my real, genuine, true friends. So my question for you is, what do you think it looks like in the in the time of social media to have our lives integrated between online and offline. And you kind of just spoke to that and what you were just saying, but what what is that responsibility? What does it look like when we have when people say, oh, well, this is just my online persona. And, and here in this post, you say, no, no, we shouldn't be separated. Yeah. I think when we separate it, we are tempted to behave much differently online than we would in person, like face-to-face with someone. And I am so guilty of this. So I am definitely talking to myself here because I've done it in the past, you know, where you get angry at something online and you respond maybe like really sarcastically or cruel or unkind. And, you know, later you're thinking, was that a great representation of who I am as a person? Like, was that something I would really want to say to someone or for someone else to see that I said to someone? And so I, I've been very convicted about this for myself because I do spend a lot of time online talking to people about really hard topics. And I am often tempted to be um, sarcastic or unkind or dehumanizing to someone. And ultimately, if the goal is to find common ground when it comes to what I talk about, which is gun violence, then that's probably not a helpful mindset to be in. And I am, you know, I said in that post, I'm accountable for the things I say online. I'm accountable to other people. I'm accountable to God. Um, I can't separate those things. Like when we get to heaven, God isn't going to be like, oh, all the stuff you said online, it was pretty mean, but <laughs> it was online. So I guess that's fine. Like, doesn't count. No, it's... it. It's all us, right? right? It all matters. Um, and, you know, that post was inspired because I kept seeing people seeing people talk about, oh, you know, real life is better than online life. And, you know, go spend time with people in your real life and um, invest in people in your real life. And 
But online is real too. And I know that because my life has been changed because of people I learn from online. And I hope that I'm helping to change lives of people that know me online. And I mean, you know, because we're kind of in the same circles of people on Twitter, like these people are amazing and they would do, I mean, I've had people send me care packages, you know, when I was a really tough season with writing this book, you know, people organized care packages for me and sent me meals and, um, you know, people I've never met in quote unquote real life. Um, but those people have become real friends. Like that's a real place full of awesome people and we can all impact each other's lives. And I don't think it's helpful to act like these are two different things because of course people that you live with are in community with, you know, face to face, of course, those relationships are important and those, um, can serve a different purpose than maybe online communities, but they're both really important and they both matter. So yeah, I just don't think it's helpful to separate them. I think it makes it easier for us to, you know, be different people, I guess. Talk to me about the title of your book, When Thoughts... I mean, that's kind of a snarky little title. Talk to me about that. (laughs) How'd you come up with it? Yeah, you know, it's, you know, just based on that familiar refrain that we often hear in the aftermath of... Um, mass shootings, which is, you know, oh, we're sending thoughts and prayers to the victims. We're sending thoughts and prayers to the community. Um, Because, you know, inherently thoughts aren't bad and prayers are great. You know, we need both of these things. We need people to be thinking about gun violence and praying about gun violence. But what we know is that this has essentially become a cop-out thing to say. Um, You know, we hear it from politicians Right. right after shootings, you know, oh, we're sending our thoughts and prayers the end. Well, I'm so grateful for prayers, but what we really need to do is pray and ask God, what do we do next? Um, Mm. And so for me, what I really explore in the book is that thoughts and prayers should never be all we do. That's never the end point when we're talking about gun violence or any other social injustice for that matter. That should always be a starting point because if we're human beings on this earth, We have influence and we have power to enact real change here. And as followers of God, we believe that, um, you know, we are um, bringing part of God's kingdom of heaven to earth and we are the hands and feet of Jesus. And so we have the power to do things, not just pray, and especially not to use that as um, a justification for not doing anything. Mm. Um, You know, I really think about you know, the story of the Good Samaritan. And, you know, what if the Good Samaritan had just been like, oh, so sorry for what you're going through on the side of the road over here. I'll pray and not done anything. That's a totally different story. Um, Mm. You know, actions can accompany prayers. That's a great point as Christians, because if you think about it, it's like, do we ever say for evangelism or for discipleship, Mm -hmm. thoughts and prayers? We have intentional meetings, we organize and we mobilize around those things. And so why don't we do it around issues of justice mm-hmm. or injustice yeah. or gun violence? Yeah. That's really deep. And what does it say to people maybe who aren't followers of Jesus, you know, that we're we're just going to pray about it and we're not going to actively use whatever power and influence we have to help people and make positive changes? You know, I think it says a lot about our faith if we don't believe that our faith can be walking around in the world and and doing acts of justice. What would you say to someone still trying to heal from their own trauma? What advice would you give them? I think just remembering that it's up and down. 
it's not a straight line, and that your bad days don't negate progress that you've made. I think it can be really hard when you're healing from something and maybe you've had a week of really good days and you feel like you're doing really well and um, maybe you've jumped a big hurdle and you're feeling really good. And then you have a bad day and something feels really hard and maybe you feel really sad. It's so easy to see that bad day as a failure or, um, you know, like wipes away all that progress you've made in your healing when the fact of the matter is we're just going to have hard days because we're whole people and trauma becomes part of our lives and part of who we are and how we move forward. Um, and those bad days don't mean you're not healing or that you're not moving forward or that you can't heal. It's just It just doesn't happen to go in a straight line like we want it to. So to just be gentle with yourself and let yourself have those bad days and mm. – I just think that's so important not to put so much pressure on ourselves to feel like we have to heal a certain way or on a certain timeline. So this show is called Viral Jesus, and our tagline is talking to Christian content creators about how they make their faith go viral. My question for you as we close this out is, where is God in all this? Where have you seen God most in your story? You know, the day of the shooting— there was a moment where I just, I really desperately wanted to pray. You know, I was in this mm. horrible situation and I thought I should be praying. I should be talking to God about this. And I just, I didn't have anything in me. I was so afraid and I I did not know what to say. And I was, you know, reminded in that moment of the scripture about how when we don't know what to pray, you know, the spirit intercedes for us. Um and I experienced that so viscerally, so physically, that God was with me in that moment and that Jesus was interceding on my, my behalf to the throne of God. And, you know, I would never go back to that day. You know, you could not pay me to go back to that day. But mm. to experience God so closely in that was so powerful. And, you know, I, I don't, I think that's, not something you can recreate in everyday life, at least in that specific way. You know, of course, God is with me in everyday life. Um, but I felt I never felt closer to him than I than I did on that day. And that continued because then in the really dark moments where I was in so much pain or I just wanted relief and I just wanted to stop having nightmares or I just wanted everything to be normal again. I had experienced the presence of God so deeply that I was able to trust him with the rest of it, that I was able to know he was with me on that awful mm. day. And he's with me here in the middle of the night in my bedroom when I'm too scared to sleep. And he's with me when I'm in so much pain and I want to cry. And he's working even now, even in this, he's working. He's just been with me. He has proved himself over and over again that he is faithful with these things and these little things that, you know, sometimes we feel like maybe God doesn't see the inconsequential details of our lives. We, you know, things that feel too small. But he was always so faithful with me in those little things. You know, we got married six weeks after the shooting happened. Oh, wow. I know things like I didn't really want to get married with six metal pins sticking out of my hand and wearing a sling and scars on my chest and you know, there were people that came in and made me a really pretty sling or figured out how to, you know, cover up some of the wounds I still had and, um, you know, 
He like gave me joy on that day. Mm. Things like that. Um, He's just so faithful. And I think there's no way I can retell the story of what happened to me without pointing out all the miraculous ways that God intervened on that day. He's just in all of it. It's just undeniable. So I just want to thank you. And I want to invite all of our listeners to go follow you on all of your social platforms and to please buy your book, When Thoughts and Prayers Aren't Enough. You can buy it directly from the InterVarsity Press website or on Amazon, or I'm sure anywhere books are sold. Um, So I invite them on that journey and to enter into this conversation and as Christians to to pick up this conversation and, and this invitation by Taylor. I like to end each episode with a little segment I call Growing Viral, and this is where I scour the Viral Jesus hashtags on all of our social channels and look for someone who maybe you haven't heard of yet, but you should certainly be following as they grow viral. Today, we talk to Clifford Stummy. I am joined today with Clifford Stummy, who is also known as the Pop Song Professor. Tell me about that. Yeah, thanks for asking. The Pop Song Professor is a YouTube channel blog and used to be a podcast where I explain song lyrics for songs that are typically ones that are in the top 40, but really anything that's popular that is catchy, but also you know has like this deeper meaning. If you've ever been listening on Top 40, and it happens every once in a while, not too often, but you hear a song and you're like, what is he talking about? Or what is she singing about here? Those are the kind of questions I try to answer. What was your favorite song to oh, break down? Man, uh, you know, honestly, I really liked Can't Feel My Face by The Weeknd. And I okay. also really liked <laughs> uh, I Took a Pill in Ibiza by Mike Posner. Both drug-related ones. That's not intentional. It's just how it played out. <laughs> but they were just interesting. And the, how, what's your background to start dissecting these song lyrics. Yeah, I actually started doing this right out of grad school in an English program where I got my master's in English and I had spent two years explaining, you know, yeah, really analyzing and explaining poems and books and short stories from, you know, most cases a long time ago. And I really wanted to use these skills in a way that I could connect with other people culturally and connect Mm. with a lot of people. So I wanted to find something that other people were already talking about and excited about that somebody with analytical skills could speak to. And everybody's talking about pop music. Everybody listens to it. It basically is, you know, the modern poetry is where we get our dose of poetry that we might have gotten 200 years ago. So that's where I went. How can people who are interested in this and the pop song professor or obsessed, how can they find you online? Yeah. If you search pop song professor, I will be the first thing to pop up. The website is there, but the channel is more fun. And then if you're curious about the Obsessed podcast, Clifford Obsessed, searched anywhere, Google, or on any kind of podcast app, you'll find me. We hope you will not rest until you find Clifford and support his voice and his work. Join me in supporting his growing viral community. Viral Jesus was brought to you by Christianity Today. I've been your host and creator, Heather Thompson Day, producer and audio engineer, Lauren Joseph, and executive producer, Ed Gilbreth. Please review and recommend us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Make sure you subscribe and rate us on your preferred platform. Join me next week as I talk to a pastor who has exploded on TikTok. His handle is Cross Culture Christian. You can look him up now 
now so you are ready to completely dive into the world of TikTok when I sit down with Kevin Wilson next week. See you next week on Viral Jesus. This episode was brought to you in part by the Areopagus Podcast. Two clergy of different traditions, Father Andrew Stephen Damick and Michael Landsman, discuss encounters of historic Christianity with other religious traditions. How do we engage with those who believe differently? Listen wherever you get your podcasts.